1: We've been making cheese in Wisconsin since before we were even a state, which may be one reason why we win so many awards for it. It's what happens when a whole state dreams in cheese. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com.
2: You're listening to Fields, the podcast. I'm Wyeth Marshall. And I'm
3: Melissa Metric.
2: On Fields, we're bringing you the stories of people who are working in the world of urban agriculture. For money, for fun, for art, for justice, to feed the hungry, to green the city, or to uncover its history.
3: In each episode of Fields, we'll delve into one kind of food that's grown in cities, one technology used to grow, or one project that teaches us something about our relationship to farming in urban environments.
2: Moreover, we'll investigate all the whys behind getting up in the morning and working as a farmer in the city today.
3: You don't need to be a farmer to enjoy this podcast, or even a foodie.
2: We're going to tell fascinating stories and break down the realities and possible futures of urban farming to their elements. Hey, you're listening to Fields, the unfinished story of urban agriculture, and we're joined today with a very special guest, uh, Henry Gordon-Smith. Henry, do you want to do just a brief intro of yourself?
4: Hi, everyone. I'm Henry Gordon-Smith, founder and CEO of Agritecture. Twelve years ago this month, as a young political science student, I got interested in climate change and I was trying to find my fit in the sector. So I started a blog called Agritecture about how to use architectural thinking to integrate agriculture back into our cities with great gratitude to the audience that followed that blog, that kind of emerged and grew into a consultancy as people started seeking out my advice for how to design these farms. They were looking for the data on yields, capex, technologies, policies, et cetera. So we launched the world's first global consultancy focused on urban agriculture. That was in 2014. And we've done 250 consultations in 40 countries, a lot of them urban agriculture related, covering aspects of greenhouses and vertical farms, which have been very popular. We also advise governments on policies, including the city of Atlanta, Dallas, Paris, aspects of New York, uh, New Zealand, Australia, uh, Qatar, And we also advise investors. As the rise of vertical farming emerged, we did due diligence on a lot of the large vertical farming companies and got to understand many aspects of the economics of these farms and their failures, et cetera, and have been the go-to due diligence firm for that work. And finally, our fourth client category, our first being entrepreneurs, second policymakers, third investors is corporations, so corporations like IKEA, for example, hired us for their global strategy for how to integrate urban agriculture across their 300 plus stores globally, or Coca-Cola who hired us to understand should they be sourcing from these kinds of farms from a carbon footprint perspective, or various other corporations. So it's been a great privilege and certainly my team of 12, which are based around the world with our headquarters in New York, are uh, hugely to credit for the amazing work that we've done.
2: Awesome. Well, um, yeah, I mean, your work is is very impressive and speaks for itself. So again, thanks. We know you're, you're very busy, um, so we really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us today about um, some aspects of your work. And really, just we're interested broadly in uh, all kinds of aspects of urban agriculture. But Melissa and I were we're talking as we're kicking off our fourth season of our of our show um, about um, really what's going on with the vertical farming, high tech. You know, well. Uh, Capitalized um, companies that we've seen some some recent uh, bankruptcies and and other big changes in the sector. So we thought, you know, who would would know better than you? um, Kind of uh, what what it all means, right? So that's just sort of laying the groundwork for one reason. Um, But in general, I'm always very curious about your work, and I know the policy side is something we're also super interested in. So we may just have to bug you again, have you on um, anytime for another update.
4: Part of our mission to share as much knowledge as possible because we know that we can't do this alone so we really strive to be transparent honest and catalyze not just our impact but the impact of our audience and all of you listening so i love to share and be a resource it's no problem it's my pleasure excellent Great. um well do, thanks a lot yeah, yeah. Melissa, take it away
3: um henry i do i do want to ask you just um you gave us such a good introduction um i But I was wondering around 2014, when you got interested in this work, what was going on in the world? What what were you thinking about? What drew you to, you know, focusing on indoor agriculture and, you know, hydroponic and vertical systems, soilless growing? But what do you think was going on specifically? Around that time that all of a sudden you were interested, other folks were interested. You mentioned climate change. I know that might be like, you probably get this question all the time, but just specifically as we're looking at like a time lapse or a timeline, what, what, what sure. was happening then?
4: Sure. So there's two questions there. What catalyzed interest for me and and what was for for the sector overall? So on the first one in 2011, when I was a college student studying political science, I had a professor, Dr. Raul Pacheco Vega, who was an expert on water wars. And this blew my mind that there are these um, actual physical conflicts, wars and actual political and economic conflicts over water resources. And I really thought this was incredible. This wasn't on the news, just the decades of wars between the United States and Mexico, or even the political battles between Canada and the United States. Or we can look at many, many other, even more scarce regions in the world and what's been happening. Literally, countries have been cutting off water to regions since the beginning of of, of civilization. And, and these things are relate to environmental security, which is what became very a big passion of mine at that time. And so I wanted to dig deeper into that. So actually, the beginning for me was about water and water security. And actually, my only academic published work is about the myth of Canada's water abundance, just to show how I'm trying to unravel what's under the surface. Now, when I started agriculture as a blog, I also had two other blogs, and one of them was focused on water. But agriculture just became much more popular. And it was more interesting to me as well. And it really brought in the food, water, energy, waste, Nexus. So to me, it was kind of more interesting than water alone. And it was also had so many more data gaps than water did. I mean, agriculture is more complex. There's much more lack of data. And as there was an emergence of technological solutions, which I'll explain why that happened, the blog and my interest sort of you know, coalesced into this sort of very clear approach of what we wanted to, what I wanted to achieve. And, and in 2014, when I started hiring team members, what we wanted to achieve. So why was this happening in the industry overall? Well, I think like it's important to know that CEA itself is very old. It's just not that new. Growing indoors, controlling, trying to optimize goes back very, very old. But there's some signals of what catalyzes that I've used that word a lot, but what 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 sort of initiates that? You can look at the Netherlands, right? The Second Largest exporter of food in the world after World War II, they said we're never going to starve again, right? So, what did they do? They invested and in subsidized controlled environment agriculture, so there became this like really viable, sort of advanced technologically enabled way to grow so much food using less water, no pesticides in small spaces. And and that became a, a foundation for the sort of vertical farming, the more controlled sector that came later, meaning that there was technology, lighting, climate control solutions. There was a foundation that when this interest Arose, there were actual technological solutions to select from. So, but what really accelerated it further? Well, I mean, if you go a little bit closer, I think uh, Japan is an interesting example because in in Japan, you know, it's a it's an island state and it's very technologically advanced and has a has a high population. And in Japan, um, you know, they they basically ran out of forest, and so they said, you know, we're not going to cut down any more forests. So that means there was no arable land left. Where are these farmers going to go? So as you start to think, well, if we have limited arable land, should we be really growing lettuce on that land or are there technological solutions to grow lettuce in more dense environments like vertical farms, or as they call it in Japan, plant factories. So that created an actual commercialization of this technology that, yes, was sourced locally by Japanese technology companies, but also there was a Dutch connection to all of that as the CEA Foundation existed before that. And this is not an exhaustive list. We could go on for hours about the history of this. I'm just highlighting a few milestones. Now, in 2010, a microbiologist professor, Dr. Dixon de Pommier launched, uh, uh, released a book titled The Vertical Farm. And Dixon Napomi, I had the pleasure of him being my mentor at Columbia University, so I know him very well and got to work with him. But this book was a very utopian vision of vertical farming towers in really densely populated cities that would not just produce food, but clean air, clean water, produce all these jobs. I mean, even ideas of animals being grown in these towers uh, were in this. But that utopian idea really connected with the also with, with, with sort of the ethos um, or the zeitgeist of the time, which was you know overpopulation, the climate change crisis on the horizon, starting to realize it. What if we could what if we can save ourselves through technology and engineering? And what what's more attractive than that, especially to um, I mean this respectfully, but in my opinion, from a philosophical perspective, or I think this is also about the male need to save the planet through engineering, right, which is also as old as time. So I think it really struck a chord with a lot of men that had been successful in other businesses and had children that were sort of saying, what are you doing about climate change, dad? And so when this book arose, a lot of people read that and said, I'm going to build one. And they just started building these farms based on a very utopian idea. And a lot of them were building them with a really huge lack of market research, um, uh, really understanding of the unit economics, and mostly just um, based on hype and excitement and, and naivety, which I understand is kind of exciting as any new technology happens. So in 2010s that's when people started really commercializing these and I actually featured I think 2011 2012 the first commercial vertical farm that was announced in North America local garden and and that vertical farm went bankrupt within a year and a half so it was so so I, the, when i featured that on my blog it also um created some legitimacy for my level of analysis and and was a signal of what was to come and best practices could emerge from those failures. But what we saw moving forward is that that naivety didn't really go away. In fact, as funding started going to the sector, the hype actually accelerated and, and practically peaked about three years ago, let's say, um, maybe even maybe 2019, 2018 is when it really maybe was was just getting out of control um, and and huge amounts of funding, huge valuations. And that was also fostered by a lot of you know, cheap money, low interest rates, a lot of uh, VCs willing to invest or having to invest in something green and vertical farming fit that. But that's sort of like the zeitgeist sort of what happened over that period of time that got vertical farming so hot so global so interesting and again with dixon's book like you can actually look at google alerts and around 2010 the searching for vertical farming just really starts to accelerate so the power of ideas in this digital world is is really uh, shouldn't be underestimated as far as what can be achieved both positive and negative when it comes to new sustainable technologies
3: yeah, that, that's so interesting. I remember seeing um, uh, Dr. Dixon Despani speak and maybe it was at Columbia. Um, uh, and two things, or sorry, why I thought, um, I'm gonna let you jump in in two seconds, but maybe, um, and I know I, I ask questions in multiple forms, but one or two things that stuck out was um, this, you know, naivete that you're speaking about. And, and I see that as a soil grower, I see that, also and a lot of people going to rural farms um, sure. from the city and yes. they have this bucolic perspective yeah. and they're just like oh my god i'm going to go out and live in my yeah. log cabin and raise It's farmers yeah yeah and but but it's really interesting what you're talking about is specifically in urban areas specifically a gender so so you know when you spoke about like men going out yeah. um, in these urban areas mm-hmm. with this naivete which yeah. usually isn't paired for some reason yeah that gender. Um, but, um, yeah, well so. I guess
4: I guess I would call it more hubris, the naivety in the case of the, the male gender. And again, I, I'm sure a lot of people are gonna be offended what I'm by what I'm saying. But again, I think that there's a, a historical context for this, which I can explain in a moment. But maybe maybe we can reframe it as a bit of hubris, right? Like, yeah. But controlling it- controlling nature through engineering as a savior yes. complex.
3: Yes. And then and then also a yeah, the savior complex and 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 this idea of like a lot of Words that I'm hearing are like solution or like fixing this problem, like this larger problem, which is, you know, a, a huge existential crisis now within humanity that's been going on, w- which we had knowledge of since the 1970s, which is climate change. Um, but but like these kind of phrasing and, and and words of of like fixing this larger issue, which is like, hey, how are we going to feed ourselves? And also, how are we going to survive climate change, which seems like these much larger things and, and like a solution, like here's a solution or we're going to fix this with engineering, um, which, you know, for, for in, in my perspective and in my studies, I think that's definitely like part of a, like solution. If we want to think of like solution-based things, um, but also, yes, the idea of control within these environments and controlling nature, I'm going to get a question out of this, I swear, no, I'm um, but it. I'm just kind of like <laughs> summing it all up. Um, From from kind of my lens. But um, but, yeah, just just this idea of, you know, here we are in 2023 and climate change is like, you know, very present with us Um, and, and a huge issue that we're coming across is, is water. I'm so glad that you brought up water in general. And I would love if you actually started a water blog, I feel like that would be great. If you're like, oh, maybe now's the time to do the water. I'm sure you're very busy. Um, but also just this idea of energy and, um, with the sustainability of vertical growing and indoor growing, um, you know, a a key factor is also energy. Where are we getting all this energy? And if it's a, if it's a sustainable process, um, very much sustainable with water, Um, if, and especially if we're filtering the water, um, after we're cleaning out the systems, if we're using chemicals and stuff like that, so it doesn't go into our waterways, but, but also just the energy in general of if we're doing indoor growing and we're using all this lighting and stuff like that, um, what is that sustainable source? Like, is that really sustainable both, both financially and in this larger environmental perspective of like where we're getting that energy from?
4: Okay, as so a hyped up not as here. a hyped up as a hyped up emerging technology, yes. I mean there there's so much greenwashing that's occurred in vertical farming and actually, you know, even in my early days, as there was lack of information, I also participated in that, but I very quickly adjusted that. And I think we've we've managed that quite effectively at, effectively at agritecture, especially in the last you know seven years. But um, we've actually published a lot of free greenwashing guidelines. I've spoken directly to CEOs of these companies and called them out on LinkedIn or personally about the greenwashing they're engaging in and the responsibility and damage that that causes. I think for agriculture, you'll rarely hear us say, you rarely hear us associate vertical farming with sustainable agriculture. They're they're different things. And, and at most, we would say vertical farming is a part or a journey towards a more sustainable food system as it optimizes and improves. And that also relates to a more renewable energy grid that, that isn't just in the hands of vertical farmers. Okay, so so let's just be explicitly clear here. Uh, vertical farming itself, as you mentioned, uses artificial lighting, but also an extensive amount of climate control and engineering. So on the operational side, all of that energy, if it's not sourced from renewable sources, which most vertical farmers are not using renewable sources, it cannot be labeled as sustainable. It simply cannot because the carbon footprint of that source of energy and these essentially data center-esque energy consuming Uh, warehouses um, is is more significant in our analysis than even importing the food from California to New York as a comparison. So we worked for Coca-Cola and compared for them a greenhouse in New York, a vertical farm in New York, or a soil-based farm in California supplying New York City. Which of those has the lowest carbon footprint and still can achieve some level of food security? California of course can grow quite quite often but not not necessarily year round and the greenhouse really stood out as the winner however when you heat that greenhouse it does start to make it less sustainable but again if you want to be seasonal you need to heat it but still the greenhouse was the most low carbon not life cycle analysis low carbon solution there okay and we even accounted for waste in that system, the waste from the product from California and the CO2 footprint of that waste. So it it was significantly, I mean, if I recall, the vertical farm was about nine times higher, okay? And we didn't even account for the embodied energy of the equipment. If you look at some of the recent Square Roots analysis on their sustainability, which I'm impressed that they actually published something, the embodied energy of all these materials is also a significant carbon footprint at that initial stage. So we need to really uh, be honest about that. Now, there are some of our clients and some people who are not our clients that choose to source energy from renewable sources, which is not that difficult in most developed countries these days. Now that doesn't replace the embodied energy impact, but it does certainly improve the operational impact of these vertical farms. So I think once we start being honest about it, we can actually find more meaningful solutions to find this as part of a more sustainable food system. But if we're greenwashing, we're just moving one step forward, two steps backwards.
3: Yeah,
1: that's great. Thank you for bringing that up. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. There's a reason when you think of Wisconsin, you think cheese. Cheese is a huge part of Wisconsin's history and future. In Wisconsin, the state of cheese, the tradition of cheesemaking excellence began 180 years ago, before Wisconsin was recognized as a state. Immigrants traveled to settle in this lush green hills of Wisconsin,
2: So the reason we we brought you on was to ask, so this is really good background because we're interested in sort of how all of these um, trends um, bring us to the present where, you know, there's still some hype and interest around vertical farming, but you've also seen a correction. And I know, Henry, you've written about this um, very lucidly in the past and the idea of kind of, uh, you know, bubbles in the tech sector. And and you've talked about the trough of disillusionment, right? And so new technologies um, gain investor attention and money. And they gained uh, some public attention and PR. And there's, there's, as you say, a lot of greenwashing going on. There's also a lot of um, good actors who are really trying to figure out solutions. There's a lot of uh, basic research happening within companies that isn't necessarily published and shared uh, because it's being done by private entities. And so now we're at a moment when you still have some vertical farms um, that seem to be doing well, at least from the outside. And then you have some notable um, bankruptcies, uh, some companies that have. Um, you know, made it out the other side and some that have gone away. So, you know, we were just curious um, from your expert perspective, uh, you know, what's going on and how much of this is related to uh, the pandemic um, now to serious global wars. Right. Um, and especially uh, you know even just the the rise in electricity prices um which i know affects the operations of fully indoor farms more than say a greenhouse to your point about you know these are different modalities with different needs so i know there's a lot kind of going on there but could you speak a little to the recent history kind of catching us up after uh, there's a lot of investment there's a lot of companies formed um what's going on in 2023 and and maybe um you know a second part of that is what do you see in the near future
4: okay So um, I I write extensively about this in multiple blog posts, but the best one for anyone to read would be the uh, AgFunder December 2021 article about vertical farming is entering the trough of disillusionment. And this is why that's a good thing. Now, it's important to be objective. And so in that article, I apply the Gartner hype cycle, which is common across many technologies, all new technologies as a methodology to the vertical farming sector. And what happens in the gartner hype cycle is there's sort of this uh, peak of ex- of, in- of inflated expectations. Okay, we sort of talked about why that happened. The the, the very good um, feelings. and and sometimes naive, sometimes hubris, but generally like a good feeling to try and save the planet to some extent is not bad. We don't wanna remove that from society, right? But you need to taper it and control it. Now, the way Silicon Valley works is that it's fear of missing out. So when a lot of people rush into something, more people rush into it like a herd mentality, people start to rush out, they rush out even further. So after there starts to be some realization that these farms are not profitable and most large scale vertical farms are not profitable, once that became evident, then there starts to be this decline. That decline becomes very dramatic. OK, so just as dramatic as the incline. And then we enter a trough of disillusionment, which we're pretty much in right now with multiple bankruptcies, major bankruptcies and investors running away and not even touching it. Sometimes investors won't even talk to you about CEA, whether you're a farm or technology or software. They won't even talk to you about it, many of them, because they've all run away and they all think it's just completely unsuccessful, which is not true. There are some profitable small scale vertical farms, medium vertical farms and even some large ones that are now breaking even. Eat- breaking even on the way to profitability. But that doesn't matter now because that FOMO and that has now had the reverse reaction where everyone's leaving. So we need to sort of stabilize things and move into the slope of enlightenment, where we find the right fit in this, what does that look like? Well, that looks like, okay, vertical farming will be a small part of our food system and can be sustainable in these ways and not in these ways. Like, let's be very explicit about where this works, where it doesn't, what scales, what crops. Let's not to say, let's not use words like um, the future of farming or um, save the planet by buying from our farm or you know, we're local, so we reduce our carbon footprint without saying where your energy is sourced from. That, that time, hopefully, is over as long as voices can continue to share best practices, failures, and honesty. It's also very exciting because a lot of people that have lost jobs in this area, although that's disappointing, have experience firsthand. So, their operational capabilities have actually optimized. So, new companies that start vertical farms can learn from these mistakes hire amazing new talent. So in my opinion, it's actually kind of a very exciting time to invest in vertical farming itself, because there's so much good talent available that actually knows how to do this. And there's an ability to still capitalize on the underlying trends, which will make vertical farming inevitable as part of our food system, i.e. lack of water, lack of arable land, extreme climates, rising populations in island states or uh, Middle Eastern states, uh, lack of clean food, contamination of food. These are underlying drivers that have not disappeared. So vertical farming has a bright future as long as we can foster it into this next chapter effectively. Now, why did the vertical farms fail? Well, their unit economics didn't add up. Right, and so when you when you say my company's worth a billion dollars to a to a VC investor, and then you can't make your farm profitable, that VC investor is going to run away. Okay, so you know they and 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 to give them some credit, right? I think there's two things that sort of fed into this. I think one was like this hype piece of it, and the other piece was the sort of lack of profitability as it was being figured out. So so I think that those things just sort of hit a. a a point where there were certain signals that accelerated that. For example, in Europe rising energy prices, okay, now it's very clear we can't make money, right? If you're if you're losing a little bit of money every month and not really making it, it's like okay, it's a new technology, you're figuring it out. But once that goes to like completely just you know burning your cash, the investors are going to are going to run away, right? Even the entrepreneurs themselves are going to be like we can't do this, we have to shut down. But that energy price spike didn't happen everywhere. In the case of the United States, I think a lot of this was driven by, again, um, a lack of of unit economics performance and profitability, but also interest rates rising. So when cheap money went away, it starts to um, heighten the problems within any a new company like this, and this wasn't exclusive to vertical farming. So, you know, these companies will make the claim that it's like, oh, it's the energy prices that broke us, or oh, it's the interest rates. I think there was something before that, but I do think that secondarily, those things accelerated the demise of these companies. And I think to give these companies some credit the investors have a huge responsibility in this. The investors, most of them didn't do sufficient due diligence. Most of them invested in companies that they shouldn't have invested in. Most of them didn't understand that agriculture is rarely something that VCs can invest in. And if they're going to, they need to have more slow capital mindsets. And I think if you're putting money into a company, you bear a huge responsibility in that, in checking in with that company and making sure that investment is accurate, et cetera. These are really smart, intelligent people, but the psychology of FOMO is, so powerful that it overtakes a lot of the uh, logic um, that these that these investors should have practiced, and so they bear a huge responsibility for this. And so, for them to pull out that money as well is is very aggressive. Right. And 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 also not necessarily fair to these companies. Why? Because these companies have been invested in to revolutionize agriculture. Right. And sure, that's part of the hype that the companies pitched the investors, but the investors bought into that hype, right? They like it because it's a big story. And that means other investors are going to come in. And when they come in, my value goes up. And then if we can exit, I get this huge 10x return on my investment. Right. It's 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 gambling. essentially. It's betting on a horse. When everybody's gambling, you got to bet on one of those horses and they just pick the best one they can. Now, these companies, as a result of that kind of investment, which again, both bear responsibility, they focused on R&D, reinventing agriculture. Literally, these companies were, were having R&D centers that were repeating research and development that was done in the 80s or the 90s, just to give the investors a story of R&D. Like, so much wasted money on R&D as opposed to commercialization. And again, that's because the investors are pushing them and they've sold the investors on this. It's like it's just drinking Kool-Aid, right? On, on, we're going to revolutionize agriculture. And, and, and so now it's about commercialization right sure we can do some r&d but when you're spending 60% of your budget on r&d you're not going to have a commercial project right and i think that you know a lot of software companies it's no problem they can lose money for 10 years 20 years and then they're going to be profitable but software is not agriculture we're talking about plants with biological limits we're talking about food safety we're talking about people there's still levels of automation that you can't achieve so I think that that is where a lot of these problems stem from, um, and some of the primary and secondary problems. But again, it's important to know that there are underlying drivers that will make this type of agriculture inevitable.
2: Wow. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks a lot, Henry. Um, I think we we have, and there's so much more to talk about specifically with some cases and examples, but I think we've run out of time with you if I'm if I'm right. Uh, so just yeah, no, I can, in I
4: can extend, but it's, 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 it's fine. If you, if you would like to stop, it's fine. My next call is internal, which is why, you know, I'm happy to, to continue if you would like more for me. Um, it's not difficult to move it, but if you have other commitments, it's also fine. And I just want to add the layer of this, thing I mentioned about the hubris, because again, I'm not a sexist, but if you look at most of the companies, they, they are run by men. And again, anecdotally, I've heard a lot of them in, in some articles talk about their children encouraging to go to climate yeah. change. And so I go back to history and the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar, he married this a uh, woman. The myth goes that was from a, a green area, and when she came to Babylon, she missed the greenery, and so he built the hangards of Babylon not for food security, but to green the city and to demonstrate his engineering prowess through right. this this project. So I think that is like the same myth that's been repeated through time with various engineering acts, including vertical farming.
2: Yeah, and I would just like to add on that from the the you know social science perspective, it's not just a matter of psychology and like the male. Um, you know, id and, and hubris, but which I'm sure is a function of it on the individual level. But it, there's also a real structural analysis that there is a, still a patriarchy. I mean, if you look at most VCs, right, most politicians, yes. they're still going to skew overwhelmingly toward uh, toward men. Uh, and so, you know, and CEOs, right? And so the boardroom, the C-suite. Uh, and while that might be changing in certain ways slowly over time, um, and not not all men, right? That's also going to be a certain subset oh. of men. So um, if you look at- Right. Yeah. If you look back at you know, like the amazing work of like Sylvia Federici, I mean, if you, if you look at primitive accumulation and earlier periods of of agricultural um technological innovation, I mean, this is a lot of it is is tied to these same drivers of sort of who has money, who has power, and what do they think um how do they think they can consolidate and control that um going forward? And now we're in an era when you know changes are happening so fast. So as you say, it's it's interesting. Investors are just they have to bet on something and they feel like they can't miss out. If they miss out, that's actually worse than losing a bunch of money on something that doesn't pan out you know so they're gonna bet on a bunch of different sort of horses here. So it's really yeah. interesting to get your your high level view on this. Um, we should let you go but yeah, we should just have you back on and, and you know maybe we could book um, a longer time and, and hear more about policy and some of the um, cases you guys are working on that are really interesting because uh, I think you you know one question I always have is like, okay well, what are some solutions what are some positive cases? So maybe yeah. that's just a, a just to get your brain working. Oh yeah, yeah please, yeah, I'd like please. To mention.
4: And just to just to wrap things up and give yeah. one um, sort of plug, if I if I might, you know, I talked about the greenwashing we published, i talked about the research we've pub- like there's lots of things out there for free that we provide to help the sector, whether people listen or not. But I want to emphasize that if anybody wants to know the CapEx or OpEx of any greenhouse or vertical farm on earth. We've now developed the world's first farm planning software where you can input any location, choose from 100 crops, choose your levels of technology, and get that data. There is no excuse in 2023 to build a failing vertical farm because the data has now been democratized by agriculture. So take advantage of that before you build a farm. Take advantage of that before you invest in a farm. Whether you, or Take advantage of that before you encourage policies related to vertical farming. Get the data because it's cheap and available now.
2: Great. Well, uh, yeah, and I and I can speak to it, um, having used that um, software for, for work purposes for modeling and, and understanding how you even get started with building a pro forma where, when you're in a business that is so different and changing and speculative. There's different modalities and all that. So it's it's really useful to have just somewhere to start um, for, for getting those numbers, you say, the real-world data. So um, all right, uh, let's let you go, Henry. And um, Melissa uh, will record again soon. But uh, any last thoughts um, on your side?
3: No, just um Henry thank you so much for sharing your expert like expertise and also just like a general background so for folks who are just tuning in you know knowing where we were and where we are now and also just all the amazing work that you're doing so thank you so much.
4: Thanks for your time. Really appreciate it. Take care everyone.
2: Fields is powered by Riverside.